just finding those types of clients and then just making sure that they're happy and like extremely happy and letting them be your spokesperson that speaks so much louder than you talking about yourself hello and welcome to the solar maverick podcast where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience i'm your host benoit thangent so let's get into it Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Eric Posse. He's the Chief Development Officer at IPS, Impact Power Solutions. They're a leading West solar developer. And he also has a book coming out. It's called Clean Wave, A Guide to Success in the Green Recovery. And it'll be released on October 18th. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Benoit. I'm so happy to be here. I love the podcast. I love your content. And anytime I can take a moment or an opportunity to chat with a fellow thought leader in the space, I am happy to do so. So I appreciate being on today. Yep. Thank you for making time. And I'm excited that you reached out to me about your book and as well to talk about what you've been doing at IPS. You know, I think it would be really helpful if you could talk about your role as chief development officer and IPS in general. And I think you've been at the company now for 2007, 2007, 13 years. And even then too, like you're early in the solar industry. So it would be interesting to kind of hear about your role at the company and learn more. Absolutely. Thanks for the shout out to the book. And obviously we'll cover that here a little bit later. But as you mentioned, chief development officer, kind of a title that's new-ish to the industry. And that role has evolved for me over time. As you mentioned, I joined IPS in 2007, fresh out of college. I was very passionate at that time. And I continue to be very passionate about the climate crisis that we're currently dealing with. And I was looking for any companies that would allow me to act on that passion of doing something about climate change. And so I probably sent out resumes to several dozen energy companies and energy efficiency, solar, wind, anything that was in the clean energy space that was located in the Midwest. And IPS was the only one to call me back. The role that I started in was sales. And I really hated the idea of sales. Personally, coming out of college, I just had this preconceived notion of, you know, kind of the sleazy car salesman. And I was really wrong about that. And now I love sales and I almost miss sales in my new role in development. But what it really means is I'm responsible for helping mature the company and develop new markets and new offerings. And so just over the last five years, we've done a ton in community solar and specifically in the Midwest and Minnesota and Illinois. And I helped to grow that side of our business basically from zero to now over 100 megawatts of community solar development. And um, we're also a construction company. So I went through the joys of having only constructed a 100 kilowatt system and then scaling to do you know five megawatt sites and the challenges that that brought So I've really had this vantage point of being hyper really on the micro side of when I started, I actually installed some of the systems that I'd sold. So I'd get up on the roof with our installers and actually install the equipment to then seeing what we're up to today, which is these larger community solar installations. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think you were involved in a lot of the lobbying efforts for community solar in Minnesota. And so making Minnesota one of the top community solar states in the country. Can you talk about that process and how that was like and to see like now how much 
you know, IPS that's done and is still under development? We had a window opportunity in 2013 with the House, Senate, and governorship in the state all being democratically controlled. It was an opportunity that some of the environmental groups and NGOs been circling as their window to enact kind of some sweeping legislation. And so we had, as a state in Minnesota, enjoyed success related to wind development. There was an RPS, which for some of your listeners, Renewable Portfolio Standard, that was enacted in 2007 that required some of the investor-owned utilities to get a percentage of their usage from clean sources. And that 25% by 2025 mandate that was enacted in 2007 really spurred the growth of the wind industry in the state. And so what happened in 2013 the environmental groups were also very interested in addressing solar energy within that standard. And so they were going to require the investor-owned utilities to get one and a half percent of their energy from solar. And I remember being in the solar industry at that time, I was like, well, hey, you know, we're at like 0.01%. That's like a hundred plus fold increase. Um, (laughs) So I was motivated from that standpoint, but also because I was really inspired by a lot of the groups that were pushing this. So which included like the Sierra Club, 350.org and some other kind of local groups, including Fresh Energy. They were just super passionate about doing it. And I felt like if I didn't also match that intensity, you know, I'd be doing a disservice to them and also to myself. So I went phone banking on weeknights. I'd get together with folks on the weekends and do canvassing. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. You know, like I think that our industry, we do owe a lot. Uh, Solar industry owes a lot of our success to some of these uh, grassroots organizations, which is why I try to give back as much as I can. So definitely um, during that time, we were able to get that bill across the finish line 2013 Solar Jobs Act. And within that was baked a community solar bill or piece of legislation that enacted that program required Excel Energy to enact that program. And the differentiating factor that I had no idea would be as big as it ended up being was that there was no cap on the program. And so you look at a lot of these other markets, including Colorado, some of the other earlier states that dealt with community solar, it was really stunted by these artificial or program caps which, you know, the utility had pushed for. So we got really lucky. You know, I talk a little bit in the book about just being at the right place at the right time. And that certainly was the case in Minnesota. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an amazing story that you talk about that in the book, as well as um, you mentioned about, you know, being a salesperson and how you didn't like that and you grew to love it. So it's, you know, interesting because we are already incorporating in the interview some of the concepts that you spoke about Mm -hmm. in the book, which is almost like a brief biography of your experiences. So yeah. Can you talk about the Midwest solar market just in general? Obviously, we talked about Minnesota community solar. I know you're active in Illinois. I also think it would be helpful for like the audience to just understand the Midwest solar market. It's different, yeah. unique in each state, as you know, and even mm-hmm. potentially utility service area is unique as well. So the Midwest is one of the, what a lot of developers in the country would say is an emerging market. One of the kind of unique challenges that we deal with in the Midwest, industrial Midwest, is that energy prices historically have been much lower than the coast, right? And I've done some development work in Hawaii, for instance, and on the Kona coast where they're paying 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Well, when you compare that to 
places in uh, Ohio where, you know, you're paying like five cents a kilowatt hour or four cents. It's the economic difference is pretty stark. So it took a while for solar to become a viable alternative in the Midwest. But conversely, we also have some of the fundamentals that going for us, which include cheap land, farmland. We're in the prairie area of the country. So we do see a lot of sun out here. And so those things which helped the wind industry grow, you know, a good resource, agriculture, farming land that is easily convertible into solar and wind facilities. Some of those fundamentals existed. And so it took a little while, but solar is now on the way up. Our regional ISO, which is a mid-continent ISO, is now one of the most active in onboarding renewables and has gigawatts and hundreds of gigawatts in the queue for solar. And um, and so we're going to see a lot of that happen and really the landscape, just the general landscape of the Midwest set to change to include a lot more solar and wind here over the next decade. Does IPS work outside of the Midwest? We've talked about the Midwest, but are you looking at at other markets? Absolutely. And I think the maturation of our company is such that we love what we're doing in Minnesota. I think Illinois is a cautionary tale of what we might see kind of in the future is that policy, well-intended as it is, can have very good outcomes and then ones that are more rocky. We've seen that or starting to see that in Illinois where, you know, we've got this kind of boom bust ebb and flow of renewable energy credit availability to community solar. And so we just feel like long-term viability of our business requires us to be active in multiple areas. And so we've expanded into some newer markets. The East Coast has obviously been very active over the last dozen or almost approaching, you know, 15 years, kind of starting with New Jersey and their SREC market, their SREC program, you're kind of right in the middle of it there. And then expanding outward, you know, a lot of the traditional community solar markets are, are ones that we're looking into and expanding into. We found that we're very good at developing community solar and working with our clients to bring value, mainly on commercial and industrial side as opposed to residential subscriptions, but providing value to our clients. And so we're taking the show on the road, so to speak. That definitely makes sense because you don't want to be dependent on certain states and markets. And Mm -hmm. uh, if the regulations are not going to be in favor of solar development or very volatile, it just doesn't make sense to basically be like location-based, if that makes sense. And exactly. We see see a lot of developers basically following where obviously the best incentives are going to be. And I think um, you mentioned a great point about Illinois and the Illinois rec market and obviously the solicitation and, you know, how there are a lot of different projects that Mm -hmm. applied for the program, but only a few projects were actually approved. So, yeah, you know, it's crazy. And I definitely don't malign policymakers. Policy is so tough, you know. And especially at the speed at which the renewable energy market evolves, you know, pricing for an SREC a year ago is going to be, you know, almost (laughs) totally different than what the actual value should be two years from then. So it's something that consistently evolves. I think everybody does a better job when we're all looking at kind of how taking the best from other markets and learning from the worst. So I do feel like some of those more pragmatic programs do end up being more successful. But yes, we're all trying to avoid this kind of boom and bust cycle as possible. And I think there are several markets that do a good job of that. 
Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. And I'm curious to see too, when the federal ITC goes down to 10% in 2022, like how does that impact state level mm-hmm. incentives and whether they'll adjust accordingly based on the decrease? I think, you know, obviously the industry will figure out ways to lower the cost, but I'll be curious to see what happens to state level incentives. Yeah. I mean, you know it as well as I do. There's a lot that will happen in the next 12 months yes. in terms of the outlook of what, what our industry is all about. But I think you're right. States will continue to lead on this and we're going to see a lot of innovation. I'm pretty excited about what certain states and what certain utilities really will do in the face of this climate crisis and stay tuned. Definitely. I agree with everything you're saying, Eric. It would be interesting too, to get your perspective. Like IPS has grown tremendously. It's grown tenfold the past few years. Obviously, you mentioned the substantial increase in community solar development and construction. What are Mm -hmm. the other reasons why you think the company has grown a lot? I think there are only, what, five employees maybe when you started? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were kind of a classic tale of maybe, you know, we'll all expound on this in another chapter of another (laughs) book. But we went from five employees when I started, we got up to about 12. Then some of the incentives went away and we were kind of getting our butts kicked in our backyard. Some of other competition had come up with financing programs that we just couldn't compete with. And so in 2012, we actually contracted back to three principles of the company, myself included. And then we just took a hard turn and aligned ourselves with what was happening at that time, which was, you know, kind of offering no upfront costs opportunity to school districts, municipalities, and businesses, and really started to focus on that side of our business. And what really changed for us, obviously, was community solar, but was definitely based on the talent that we brought in and surrounded ourselves with, the key people that helped us scale and continue to help us. And, you know, everybody talks about culture right now, and it's such a hot topic. But what that means to me is just having the right people and the right mindset for those folks. And a lot of people that we brought in too, I mean, didn't necessarily have a solar specific experience. And that's something that the solar industry can and should learn is that, you know, as folks transition out potentially from their current careers, wherever they may be, in particular, I think oil and gas and the fossil fuel industry, we need to start embracing talent and understanding that looking at solar is not that much different than looking at, you know, a natural gas plant. It's a lot of the same fundamentals and mechanics of siting a natural gas plant with siting a a solar facility exists. So really, to me, it was about bringing in those people. And that's what has made the difference. Definitely. That is really interesting. And that is so true. You know, what was interesting, it sounded like you were offering like the first sort of power purchase agreements in Minnesota Mm -hmm. to school districts. Mm-hmm. And that really, obviously, they can't take advantage of the federal incentives. And obviously, it's no money down in a discount or mm-hmm. to yep. their, their energy just makes a huge you know, difference. Yeah, that was a lot of fun because we were creating something kind of from nothing. And we weren't the first movers there, but we had some key accounts started with schools, we developed solar curriculum, and we're really kind of tuned into our clients and making sure that we were going beyond just, you know, selling electricity, we wanted to make more of an impact. That reputation helped to carry us through into community solar, where a lot of the same school districts that we had done these smaller systems for, you know, I think the most that we could do at that previous to community solar was really 40 kilowatts. And so all of a sudden going back and saying, hey, we only did 5% of this energy for the school. 
would you want to get to 100%? You know, having that trust factor already in place just really allowed us to be successful. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, obviously, to get the subscriber offtake, you already had that mm-hmm. relationship. And I know you talk about that actually in the book as well, how it's all about relationships. I'm sure at the time when you were, you know, obviously talking about PPAs to them, that you didn't imagine that you could help them with the 100% renewable energy goals a few years later. Exactly. It really is about relationships. And, you know, I'm still directors of operations and sustainability coordinators, you know, they're friends now, you know, and it's more than just like a transaction. I think that's a piece of advice that I would definitely give to other folks is that when you're being authentic and you're being genuinely interested in the success of other people, that's where the magic happens. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you there. You know, to get your perspective, Eric, on the best way to develop a commercial solar or even a community solar project. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know that's a very broad question to ask you, but I'm just really interested to get your perspective on that, you know. Playing to your strengths, whatever that is. You know, when we first started doing community solar in Minnesota, we had no experience. When we first started doing more commercial solar and finance solar, we didn't have any experience. And so, but what we did have is that kind of local connection. And this is where I definitely encourage a lot of the folks that are seeing their markets evolve and seeing a lot of interest from outside companies that are coming in and talking about, you know, all the stuff that they've done. That happened to us as well. And um, a large developer who shall not be named and is no longer with us, came to Minnesota and said, yeah, you know, competitor A, they've done one megawatt or, you know, and we do 500 a year or whatever the number was. And I just remember seeing a proposal where they were kind of like outlining competitor one and competitor two, and then them who was heads and above, you know, what these other folks had done. And just thinking about that now that they're no longer around, it's like, (laughs) okay. Uh, But keeping your head down, establishing those relationships. I mean, we just talked about it several times, but especially with landowners. I can think back. My favorite client of all time, his name is Ed Eichten. He owns a cheese and bison ranch in Chisago County, which is just northeast of the Twin Cities area. And in 2012, we installed a solar array for his cheese facility. And then, you know, he had all these hay fields and had uh, bison roaming and stuff like that. A year or two later, when the community solar program came out, I went back to him and said, hey, we talked earlier about your vision of potentially, you know, converting one of these fields into community solar project, we can try to do that now or into a solar field. You know, long story short, I mean, he's just the most awesome guy. He went through a lot, you know, the early stages of being one of the first farmers to kind of go through that process. But just finding those types of clients and then just making sure that they're happy and like extremely happy and letting them be your spokesperson, that speaks so much louder than you talking about yourself, you know, like having others talk about you and what they've done to improve their lives. When you can get testimonials and stuff like that, that's when you can find success. This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you'd love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you.
Yeah, that is huge. I mean, Eric, referrals and testimonials are the best way to get continued business. And that's a great mm-hmm. example. I appreciate you talking about your experience with that, Ed, the landowner. It would be great for you to talk about your book, Clean Wave, A Guide to Success in the Green Recovery. Can you talk about what made you write the book and more about it to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've been working on this book for about 20 months or so. And I timestamp it because it was basically when my second daughter was born because I was going on kind of, you know, paternity leave. I say that in quotations because it's like, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's definitely all credit has to go to her mother. So, you know, I started that process around then and it's gone through a couple of different iterations, I should say, since that time. But it started out as a list of resources that I would normally give to folks that would reach out. So potentially many of your listenership, I would get probably two to three requests a week from people in my network, either via LinkedIn or email, either friends or friends of friends that were curious about what I did for work and then how they may have had a passion about climate or clean energy as well and what they could do in order to get involved. And so I started this list of resources. I knew that kind of hearing those requests over and over again, that there was a lack of information out there. And so I started to pull together the book. And so within it, I talk about kind of the past and the present and future of clean tech. I also talk about actually actionable ways in which people can get involved. And I intersperse the chapters with not only my own story, but also interviews that I've done with other clean energy leaders, including Jigger Shaw and Nico Johnson, Jake Rosemary, and others related to entrepreneurship or related to networking or marketing yourself. And so it has a lot of content in there, 240 pages for really anybody that's either beginning their careers, they're graduating from school, or even mid-career professionals that are interested in just understanding what the landscape looks like. So it uh, took a turn earlier this year with COVID happening. I felt the need to really talk to that issue. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, just right but a couple miles from my house and the impact that that's had on the world. And so it's evolved even since May of 2020. But now I'm really excited to get it out into the world. October 18th, cleanwavebook.com is the website. I'm just really happy for everybody that's had a chance to make a contribution to the book. And I feel like if it helps people understand their own journey and and understand that clean energy is where they want to be and need to be, then the book will be a success. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you, Eric. I mean, I think there's no book right now kind of out there like that because I as well get you know people reaching out to me. Hey, can we speak for half an hour, an hour of what you do or what clean energy is and what are the opportunities? And mm-hmm. I think this is like a great way of kind of summarizing the whole clean energy industry, how to find a job within the industry, educating people not in the industry, about the industry from a very Mm -hmm. high level. So I think it's really valuable. And, you know, obviously so many people reach out to me. So Mm -hmm. like, it's going to be great because I could refer them to a source. So I appreciate you writing this book. And I think too, like Eric, it also talks about kind of, as we mentioned, and I mentioned the pre-interview, your kind of life story and your commitment and passion towards you know, renewable energy, clean energy, and how you kind of live your life and suggestions that you've had from your life experience as well. You know, we obviously talked about the importance of relationships and you talked about doing that first community solar project Mm -hmm. with Ed 
I think it's Ed, right? The landowner. Yeah. Yep. It's not just like a textbook, as well as building your personal brand. As you mentioned, you have thought leaders in the book. So I think it's a really great book and I appreciate you writing it taking the yeah. time to do that. No, thank you. And there's a lot of consternation writing it, but it was also a fun process. I'm a classic kind of like overachieving guy and a little bit of a glutton for punishment, but it was a lot of fun to grow, you know, just personally through the process. And um, I'm glad that you found some value in it. I'm hopeful that others do as well. Yeah. And the impressive thing too, is like, you know, when I think about the whole process that you started almost two years ago, that, you know, a lot of the book too, you talk about like COVID-19, leading the economic recovery, and you talk mm-hmm. about racial justice. Can you talk about how clean energy can help in those two regards, you know, the economic recovery after COVID-19 and then obviously? Yeah, absolutely. And what we're seeing in terms of new pandemics, new issues that are popping up is really that humanity is reaching into these areas of the world that we've never really been in. And that the globalization has brought a lot of good things, but also the speed to scale pandemics at a rate that are incredible. And so this intersection between humanity and species interacting now because, you know, these species are potentially being displaced by a changing environment leading to pandemic. Also have, on the other hand, what happened this year is really a spotlight on racial injustice. And it's important for the solar industry and the clean energy industry to take lessons away from both of these issues that will help to, you know, kind of further each of those responses moving into 2021. And so my perspective on what we can do as the clean energy movement and responding to the climate crisis is to look at what a successful global response to a massive issue looks like. And you saw the speed and scale at which China and South Korea, you know, other countries essentially just shut down to stamp out the transmission of the disease. And we're going to need to see that same similar levels of response to climate. And I think that this exercise with COVID-19 is something that we can learn from and grow from really taking a global response to an issue. And clean energy can be a solution for the climate crisis, much like a vaccine would be for a pandemic. In terms of kind of racial gap injustices that we're seeing, clean energy can certainly play a role there too. I am and have been concerned with the way that clean energy is perceived and some of the issues that it brings up, including that the more solar that people install in their homes, usually people with means to install that equipment, they're going off the grid. In traditional net metering states, the transmission and distribution costs for maintaining the grid are being socialized then on the people that don't have solar. And so we're kind of widening this energy gap between the people that have clean energy and the people that don't. And it certainly is an issue that I don't agree with. So we need to do a better job as an industry of making sure that we're doing Doing what we can in that regard. And so I see a lot of successful programs like Illinois Solar for All, for instance, and other programs that address under-resourced communities as being a great opportunity to help stem those inequalities. And so that's just high level kind of thoughts between what how clean energy intersects with both of those issues. And I'm very optimistic that clean energy will play a very positive role in both of those issues moving into 2021 and beyond. We've been talking a lot about community solar and definitely like states have been enacting legislation where there's a requirement or extra incentive for low moderate income 
households to have part of the community solar offtake, which obviously, you know, is allowing people who would normally not have access to solar to have access to that. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of the story as well. And I thought it was interesting. You mentioned as well, like the most popular positions in clean energy. And can you talk a little bit about that? And I thought it was interesting too, because you mentioned about like a solar installer and those jobs can't be outsourced to other countries, which is huge, you know? Yeah. So infrastructure, right? That's the business that we're in, at least in Washington, D.C. Infrastructure has been a hot topic and one that we saw leading the last recovery effort that we had coming out of the Great Recession in 2009. So looking at the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act as kind of a blueprint, there was a carve out for clean energy in that program, which was very successful. And it helped to launch thousands of companies and for billions of dollars of economic activity. Clean energy in 2020 and 2021 will do much the same, but at a much greater scale. So yes, what you mentioned before, solar installers, wind technicians, these are jobs that can't be outsourced to somebody overseas, right? They are intrinsically you know, construction-based and those dollars reverberate around the economy. One other piece that I also talk about in the book is that you know, rural America stands to gain a lot with the advent of clean energy jobs and clean energy projects to their communities. Not only jobs, but it's also the tax revenue that these projects create that can help to transform and inject millions of dollars into local school districts and millions of dollars via landowner payments that, again, get recycled within those communities. So it has a role to play to kind of heal this urban and rural divide as well that we're experiencing in this country. And clean energy is a topic that pulls very well across the political divide. And I think that centering a response or recovery efforts around clean energy is a a win-win both from a a climate perspective as well as an economic and political perspective. I definitely agree with you about that. And if someone's looking to get into the solar industry, obviously it depends on what type of position that they're applying to, but how would you recommend them to get into the industry? I know that you talk about this in the book as well in resources. Yeah. I think, again, it comes down to relationships, right? And relationship building. I think sending a resume and cover letter into the void that is the internet is not typically going to result in getting a job. It's taking the time and putting in the effort of talking with people. And obviously you can't really do that in person right now, but networking into your local renewable energy association, talking with their executive director, networking with people at happy hours, virtual happy hours or other things. When people get to know you and your authentic self and they understand what your objectives are, then they're going to go out of their way to help you. And if they don't have the right answer, they don't have a job open, they probably know somebody that does. And that's where you, as a potential job seeker, will find success is establishing those relationships and letting those relationships help you to get to where you want to be. Yeah, definitely. That's great advice. And I thought it was interesting too, you know, you mentioned how the fossil fuel industry is heavily subsidized by the government. I don't think mm-hmm. people realize that all energy resources are heavily subsidized by the government. People usually think it's solar 
But I think it's good that you're educating the public in your book about, you know, obviously the different types of renewable resources. You mentioned all the different technologies to give the readers of the book a guideline, but then you also talk about fossil fuels. And I think it was great that you also mentioned that it's heavily subsidized by the government. And obviously for solar, we're waiting for grid parity, which hopefully is not that far in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're pretty much at grid parity at the moment. I mean, it's utilities are seeing that adopting new solar and storage is less expensive than operating an existing coal facility. That's insane. Sure, that's huge, yeah. Um, and then, you know, you think about subsidies in the nuclear industry. I mean, wouldn't exist if not for these massive subsidies. And in many cases, doesn't exist. I mean, look at South Carolina, and I forget the name of the nuke plant down there, but you know, spent $10 billion to basically build a hole in the ground. We're at the precipice of massive change. It's super exciting to see, but it's also, you know, we need to be sensitive to those in the workforce of these existing industries that are set up for disruption to talk about, you know, transitioning. And we've not done a good job of that to date. And we've not been as welcoming as we can be and as we should be, you know, in the face of this kind of seismic disruption. We need to think about the communities where these people are coming from and open our arms to to helping them reapply their skills into the economy. Yeah, definitely. I agree about retraining and re-engaging, especially with all the disruption that we're seeing in the energy industry and across other industries as well. And obviously people have to continue learning and adapting their skills for Mm -hmm. new opportunities, which you know, I think is huge. But when do you think you will see like a massive adoption of solar combined storage in the US at least? It's so interesting to see these tenders, these utility RFPs, requests for proposals that come out. And it's difficult to know how genuine they are when they do come out. You know, are they trying to really like, you know, is it a position that they're taking to try to deflate costs that they're seeing in other types of, you know, whether it's net metering or if it's uh, community solar programs. You know, we're starting to see, you know, with Colorado, Excel had an RFP all resource RFP that came out, I believe, like a year and a half ago. And at that time, we saw a sub three cents solar and storage response. At that point, that's an insane number. You look in Saudi Arabia, a tender that they had out there for renewable power, and it was sub two cents solar, unsubsidized, right? They don't have the ITC out there. And so we're there, I think, you know, at scale. But, you know, kind of the devil's in the details too behind those numbers. Like the Colorado project, I'm not sure if it actually is moving forward. There's a lot of speculation that happens in, you know, when you see those RFPs where it's released in, say, 2018, but doesn't need to be in service until 2022. A lot of people are betting that the cost of solar will continue to decline. The other piece to it is that we pay as Americans, you know, a massive tariff tax essentially on solar. We're paying almost twice the cost that other nations are paying for solar because of these import duties. Where you know, we're paying like 30 to 40 cents a watt for solar panels in other areas of the world. They're paying less than 20 cents. When we really do look at on a levelized basis, solar is there. Battery technology is nearly there or is maybe already there. So it's an exciting time and we're going to see a lot of action over the next handful of years for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a really exciting time. I think too, a great point that you made about the tariffs, like really as the cost of solar goes down, that creates more jobs in the US because of deployment, of mm-hmm. solar deployment that can't be outsourced anywhere. And really the tariffs have actually hindered you know, job growth 
Absolutely. in the US that you know people might not totally be aware that it's really impacting. And I don't know really how many manufacturing jobs it's created in the US, you know, mm-hmm. to offset that. So it's yeah, that was when the tariff issue came up in the 201 trade case and Ceneva, you know, for that background for your listeners is very small manufacturer based in Michigan. You know, we're talking about several thousand jobs maybe combined for all manufacturing, solar panel manufacturing. But when you take in the entire ecosystem of installers and downstream suppliers like, you know, steel and racking and inverters, etc., that number is in the hundreds of thousands. And so there was a lot of consternation and continues to be consternation behind these tariffs and you know, whose jobs are we actually protecting? And it's a, you know, difficult conversation and one that's obviously very charged, but we definitely will do more when these tariffs sunset. Definitely. I agree with you. So it'll be interesting to see what happens the next few years. And then as well, I think energy storage pricing will continue to go down substantially Mm -hmm. like we've seen specifically with lithium ion technology. So it'll be really exciting to see if you have the low rates that you're talking about now, like in Colorado and Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. imagine three years from now. And that doesn't include the cost of solar as well, the capacity of the batteries and even the capacity. Yeah. It's mind boggles me like the next, mm-hmm. what the next 10 years of solar is going to be compared to yeah. what last 10 years were. Like, I'm, you know, I'm like so excited about it. I really am. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, it's going to require like the entire infrastructure of the grid to become more smarter. And even like entire industries like transportation to become smarter, where during the day where you've got a ton of solar energy, you can get essentially very, very cheap, if not free charging on your car. It's going to be this ebb and flow and, and almost instantaneous, right? Market signals of supply and demand that, uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And this has been great interview, Eric. I appreciate you making the time to be on the podcast. and yeah, Absolutely. Yeah like learning about your story and, you know, just like your ideas on clean energy and obviously your book. If the audience wants to get in touch with you, who we call our solar Mavericks, what is the best way for them? Yeah, the Mavericks, they can reach out. uh, So LinkedIn, obviously, linkedin.com slash in slash Eric Posse, just my full name. Twitter, at Eric Posse. The book is on all social channels. So like at Clean Wave Book on Twitter, Clean Wave Book on uh, Instagram, etc. The LinkedIn is probably the way to get in touch. Yeah. And the book, again, is Clean Wave, A Guide to Success in the Green Recovery. And it'll be released, am I correct, on October 18th? Is that the release date? Yep. Also, it's on Amazon as well. I think mm-hmm. on your website, you have the Amazon link. And is it only as a Kindle or is there a hardcover or something? Yes. So Amazon does it weird. So like pre-order is available. The digital pre-order is on now through October 18th, but they don't let authors publish like a pre-order for the physical copy. So the physical copy will only be available to order starting on October 18th. The digital pre-sale is now the website for the book is cleanwavebook.com. Did you do an audible version of the book or not? I have not yet. That might be something to see in 2021, but just trying to keep my head above water (laughs) now until October 18th. That's great. This is really helpful. And I appreciate you sharing your book and your time today with us, Eric. Absolutely. Thanks, Benoit. And um, yeah, best to, to you and all your listeners. Anytime. Thank you, Eric. We appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think can benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.